0: Hello, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Stranova Strategic Edge, an audio program exploring the intersection between cutting-edge business strategies and the innovations that can ignite business growth from the edges of the business ecosystem. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova, a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With our over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Stranova Strategic Edge. Sometime back around a few hundred years B.C., a wise and deeply thoughtful man named Confucius spoke and taught about our living systems. Those teachings were gathered sometime after his death in a book we know as The Analects, a collection of observations and philosophies that has had a profound influence on many millions of people over the centuries since its creation. In it, he talks of the concept of the universe, and for those of us brought up in Western cultures, that concept is often translated as the land of ten thousand things, from the clouds to rocks to flora and fauna. As a recent and striking new translation by scholars Roger Ames and Henry Rosemont Jr. is noted, however, that conventional understanding of Confucius's term, of seeing the universe as a mosaic of separable elements, has actually been biased to a significant extent on our Western culture's preoccupation with the elemental nature of life. It turns out that a far better way of understanding Confucius's meaning is that the universe consists of 10,000 events and the processes connected with them. I'll leave you, for the moment at least, to the philosophical implications of recasting your vision of the world as an interaction of processes rather than things. But why are we bringing this up in this podcast on strategic innovation in business? Because this very misunderstanding of thinking about any system as an interaction of just things is actually at the root of why so many strategic planning efforts fail to achieve the results their creators hope for. The truth is that the most dramatic and successful business strategies in any field are less about elemental products than about changing the process by which their customers do something. In this episode of Stranova Strategic Edge, we will explore this concept in depth, with an eye to illustrating both the theory and practice of what we call the process advantage. It's a powerful new way of looking at strategy, one we've pioneered with our own clients here at Stranova. And as you listen, we'd like you to take note of where some of these ideas resonate with you, and remember to write us here at ideas at or on our blog at blog.stranova.com on any comments or insights you'd like to share, or have questions about regarding your own business that we may be able to help you think through. As an illustration of what we're talking about, I'd like to take you all on a bit of a business time travel trip and go back to the early days of the automobile, and an example of process entrepreneurship in action. Imagine you're running a fire station and you're actually pretty good at it. You boast some of the best records in the business for getting to fires on time, You use horse-drawn carriages, but even with the wonderful concept of the automobile, it isn't really faster getting there in a car, since they can't yet go that fast anyway. You bring the water in a large tank the horses drag along with them, and when you get to a fire, you have a great bucket brigade team capable of getting the water into buckets and onto the fire rapidly. Now suppose you're getting competition from another fire station, and yes I know they're all supposed to be in this together, but even in the service industry it doesn't always work that way. You want to do this better than anyone, so you've read the books about reengineering, and you decide to work on the bucket brigade both in terms of speed and effectiveness. You analyze the optimum maximum size of a bucket, the shape of the buckets, and how the pouring process works. You get the team into a weightlifting program to help them carry more in each bucket, as well as to pour it more precisely. You get the new buckets online, train your buffed-up team on their use, and have improved the overall efficiency of the operation by a staggering 50%. Not bad, and it's hard to imagine any competitor could catch you, at least not immediately without their own training program. And then, just as you're ready to pull up to the next house on fire in your water tank carriage, a competitor you've never seen before pulls up in their automatic water pump truck with a steam engine driving the pumps with the capability of delivering water to the fire at a rate ten times the speed of any bucket brigade. The competitor has changed the process by which fires are fought in a dramatic way. As a byproduct of this change, not only is the old approach likely to die out fairly rapidly, the new approach will end up spawning a whole series of subsidiary businesses in the new ecosystem of the automatic water pumping systems. There will be water filling stations, specialized steam engine designs, water hoses, customized water nozzles, and more, all because of changing the process. And it's more than just disruptive technology that matters here, even though, of course, the automatic water pumper was certainly a radical technology when it first came out. Think about how profound the effect was of introducing something so radically different that customers knew they had to buy this very different approach to fighting fires. And it was profound, not just for the customers, but even more importantly for our discussion here, to the business innovator who first created the automatic water pumper. Why? Because changing the way the customer does something is, first of all, the most likely rationale for dropping an earlier approach. It is also more important, secondly, because changing the way the customer does something instantly catapults the strategic innovator to the top of the business pyramid, immediately putting this new business in the director's chair for setting standards for a new industry, as well as defining the future architecture of the entire new business ecosystem. And third, it is more important to think of it this way, because changing the process requires the creation of a new business ecosystem to support its growth. This last element is both good news and bad news, of course, because if critical systems don't exist, such as charging stations in place along the highway for an electric car, no part of the ecosystem may be able to move forward without that in place. But don't let that last comment stop you from thinking about this as a good strategic move. After all, Thomas Edison managed to find a way to get electric power grids put in place to power his light bulbs and the automobile industry managed to take off in spite of the challenging process of setting up, among many other things, the subsidiary businesses of gas refining, gas stations, and car tire distribution. As some real world examples of this, consider the revolution that Ray Kroc and McDonald's launched with their own new business model where each of their restaurants had to produce the exact same food products no matter where you visited them. This created the entire concept of franchising, along with subsidiary businesses for pre-cut french fries, entire cattle ranches dedicated to providing a uniform grade of beef for this, and even links with the toy industry for more recent product innovations such as the Happy Meal. Think of the barcode scanning industry, which started in supermarkets and has now spread to virtually any industry where material management is required. The creators of the first barcode scanner, SpectroPhysics, who manufactured it for NCR, ended up driving the development of standards for barcode scanner performance, barcode printing and placement, point-of-sale terminal interfaces, and checkout stand design for over 20 years, leading to holding on to as much as a 75% market share as they entered each new market. Think of the revolutions Intuit Corporation has created, first as a result of having Quicken shift us from balancing our checkbooks by hand to on a computer, with even automatic synchronization with our banks over the Internet, to its incredible success with TurboTax, which has radically shifted the way all of us in the U.S. prepare our annual tax returns. In both cases, Intuit changed the process from by hand to by computer, setting themselves up as the financial information standards designer for industries that spread far beyond just the consumer's involvement, as well as setting up subsidiary enterprises for computer-based check printing, integrated financial planning services, and even driving the development of new free U.S. government-based approaches to the less complex of tax return preparation. Toys R Us changed the way we shop for toys through a megastore concept that made a one-stop trip possible when searching for that perfect toy for our children. They dominated their industry for a very long time, often calling the shots so that toy makers found they had to package and price differently than they ever had before. And in the Internet space, eBay changed the rules on how we buy and sell those used items that we used to offer only through garage sales and online travel services have not only taken almost all market share from conventional travel agents, they've also enabled low-cost access to a much wider variety of travel services from the comfort of your desktop. In both cases, just as in the others, changing the way we do things created a whole collection of subsidiary industries, including the rapid explosion of small electronic payment systems, such as PayPal, to enable consumer-to-consumer selling, and development of complex booking agent software tools such as Pegasus, Gaylor, and EasyRes. So what makes some process change solutions more successful than others? As these examples suggest, there are some common rules to follow, including 1. If you can, be first with the change, but you're going to have to move fast, especially if your basic idea isn't that easy to protect with patents. Two. You need to plan out all the supportive business ecosystem needs for the venture and sign up partners where you don't plan to provide those elements yourself before you launch the venture. It should also be easy for others to provide alternative solutions for those other ecosystem elements without having to always get patent licenses from you. Your patent should protect what you care about and your patent licensing strategy should make it easy for others to get in on the action. Three the idea must actually be something people care about. 4. The solution must be compelling to the customer base for it truly to take off. In our own work we refer to this as the gotta have it syndrome. People seeing the automatic water pumper we talked about earlier obviously knew this was the fire station solution they wanted. Five, don't forget that your process innovation won't last forever. To maintain your leadership position, you will need to find a way to regenerate your success through some other means, and perhaps sooner than you ever imagined. To illustrate the idea in more depth, let's take a look at two industries, the consumer photography business and the recorded music industry. The first photograph is thought to have been created by French inventor Nicéphore Nipchi around 1826, using pewter plates coated with a light-sensitive layer. Others, such as Daguerre in France, refined this process somewhat using silver on copper and other kinds of plates, with development requiring toxic chemicals that had to be carried around from place to place. In parallel with further development of the plate approaches, by 1840 a British inventor named William Talbot developed not just an alternative means of creating developable images, but also created the concept of coating paper sheets with silver chloride to create negatives, an intermediate image that could then be used to create final prints. This process was further refined by the American George Eastman, who in 1884 developed a dry gel material that could be mass-manufactured and applied to paper, and in 1888, he introduced the first Kodak camera. That camera was preloaded with the film, designed mostly for professional photographers, and, because you had to send the camera back to Kodak to get the film developed, was marketed under the slogan, You push the button, we do the rest. Finally, in 1901, the first Kodak brownie targeted for the mass consumer was released, and the mass market for photography was off to the races. Kodak had invented a commercial service changing the way people captured their moments in time forever. And it was less about the camera than the process itself of making the pre-loaded cameras available to the customer, with Kodak taking all the challenging technical parts of the process as what they did. Actual equipment sales were less than 20 percent of their revenues back at the beginning of the business. The commercial service was the big business generator. As expected, Kodak's innovation created a need for many other parts of the ecosystem, most of which Kodak originally tried to dominate itself. That worked for a while, but Kodak soon shifted its focus from being a supplier of photographic film, including customer changeable rolls of film, paper, developing equipment, and chemicals to others, including local developing houses for their cameras. Further, Kodak set the standards for development of cameras that could use the film most effectively, eventually easing up on its own desire to create the best cameras themselves, and leaving that part of the ecosystem to companies like Leica, Minolta, and Nikon, among others. In parallel, Edwin Land in 1947 introduced yet another process innovation, instant photography, which was perhaps most popular from the 1960s through the early 1980s, something that effectively shifted the need for anyone to have to take their film to a processing shop to develop and print. Unfortunately, although it was fun to use, met a very important need that would become even more important later, and did see solid business success for many years, it was awkward to arrange to get duplicate prints, or prints of any size, if you wanted them, and the consumer Polaroid image quality never matched up to that of conventional photographic film. Kodak enjoyed a wonderful over 90 years of domination of the consumer photography business it created, but in the 1990s a new approach to photography was emerging, digital photography. Kodak itself actually joined into the development of this new business early on with the concept that it imagined this new industry would have some impacts, and the idea that perhaps by launching into the ecosystem early, it may have the opportunity to set standards for eventual image processing, subsidiary printing, etc. The problem was that there was little about digital photography which leveraged Kodak's main strengths of chemicals processing for the photographic industry and much about digital photography that others, more ready for the digital age, could easily adapt to. The end result is that Kodak has continued to be a player, and an innovative one at that, but others such as Canon and HP on the printing side, Nikon and Olympus on the camera side, and online print services such as Shutterfly have not only taken major market share, they're now setting the standards for the industry. In the consumer music realm, the story shows similar cycles, starting with Thomas Edison's invention of the phonograph back in 1877, which for the first time changed the process by which consumers could listen to any audio performance. Concerts might sound better in an auditorium, but this medium provided the opportunity to enjoy outstanding music at home and access to performances one could never have hoped to enjoy in person anyway. The process concept for this was simple. You buy a phonograph, than by interchangeable records to play on the system. And although Edison may have held some of the reins on this industry tightly for a bit, requiring use of his specific technology for a while when it first came out, the business ecosystem surrounding this industry took off quickly, including everything from development of alternative phonograph designs, replacement needles for the phonograph, the mastering and mass-publishing recording materials themselves, recording studios, the whole business of recording contracts with artists, And eventually, related phonograph audio distribution means, including performance through radio, distribution through mail-order clubs, and even American Bandstand as a vehicle for driving record sales upwards. Recorded formats, of course, evolved as technology improved. Moving from cylinder to disc-shaped records, the records themselves went from 78 RPM, for revolutions per minute, for those that don't remember, to 45 rpm, to 33 and a third rpm, to extend the length of recordings on a side, and stereo sound emerged as a way to bring more realistic life into the recordings. Later, in the 1960s and 1970s, packaged tape pre-recorded media cassettes and cartridges began to appear as an alternative to records, primarily because of their convenience for use. This in turn created the need to deal with tape hiss, and the invention of Dolby noise suppression technology was added to the mix, New tape players distributed in everything from high-end tape decks to cars to even the Sony Walkman portable tape player were taking significant market share from records and spinning off additional industries. The next major process change to hit the music industry was, of course, the development of CD audio technology, a spin-off itself of what was once aerospace-created laser recording technology for high-speed digital data capture. CDs offered many different advantages over all previous recording material including dramatically higher dynamic range and frequency response than any previous medium on the market, in fact, so much so that anyone who heard a CD-audio demo knew from the beginning that they had to have this new approach to listening to audio. A recording format that, with minimal care by the consumer, did not degrade in audio quality over time. Lower production costs than other recording formats. The end result of the introduction of the CD was that it was adopted faster than any previous audio recording medium and, by the 1990s, had virtually replaced records and tapes as the media of choice. The subsidiary CD player market and its supplier base exploded as well, along with CD audio distribution services. For all its novelty as an invention, the CD audio format didn't change that much of the way the rest of the industry operated, however. The true drastic process shift in the industry was instead to wait until Steve Jobs and Apple Computer introduced iTunes and the iPod as the 21st century began. What was the drastic shift? It was the idea of a reliable, legal, and safe, for the music providers at least, means of downloading digital music via computers for a fee. How was it enabled? Through a little bit of technology, much of which had existed for some time, for recording and downloading digital files, and a second far more important step, signing up the music companies to distribute music through this channel. This was and is one of the biggest consumer process shifts of our time in that it simultaneously impacted virtually every part of the music industry from the day of its creation. Consider the following. For the consumer, music was now available to buy anywhere a computer was around. There is no longer a need to go into a store and buy your music. For the consumer again, music was portable on a scale it never had been before, with the ability to carry the equivalent of literally hundreds of CDs in a digital player around the size of a deck of playing cards. For the recording industry, there was no longer a costly retail sales channel, including record stores, to sell through to get your products to market. As an example, Apple's iTunes does charge a fee to its music suppliers, of course, but the fee is tiny compared to the past ways of distributing product to customers. Next, because of the savings to the recording industry, the cost of buying an entire CD's worth of music online is often less expensive than buying the actual CD in a retail store, even when it's on sale. So customers are saving money on recorded music in a big way. Next, because you can buy single songs rather than having to buy an entire CD, the whole concept of releasing music as an album is being questioned by many. Single releases are becoming far more common. And finally, because of the Internet's wide reach and instantaneous nature, the time to market for recorded music is much shorter than in the past, and there is no need to wait for record stores to get a CD for you to buy a song. And that's just the start. By negotiating the first legitimate deal with music providers, and by setting up the first major means of both buying and playing digital music online, Apple instantly moved to the lead position in this particular business ecosystem. Multiple other deals have come directly from this, including the many varieties of iPods, the repurposing of radio programs, the podcast revolution of which this program itself is a part, and now the redistribution of television and music videos on video iPods. Anyone who wants to do anything with digital music online now needs to come to Apple, a small and influential player in the computer industry, but the lead player in the digital music industry, before they make a move. Quite a success story, and a great model for each of you to consider as you develop your own ventures further. As a further consequence, and not surprisingly, CD sales are plummeting worldwide, and one of the previously more successful record store chains in the U.S., Tower Records, is currently in the process of business liquidation. In all successes, there are, of course, a few cautionary notes to remember as we near the end of this podcast. First, remember the reality that, as Pip Coburn has described so well in his new book, The Change Function, any new process must have enough advantages over an older approach that the pain to switch is worth it. Think about the many tries at creating a major electronic book industry, including eBook and Rocketbook. Because books are still a fairly well accepted means of reading, and eBooks still have major drawbacks of ease of use. The market has done little to change the way we read today, in general. Second, remember that even if the new idea is a good one, it may be very costly to pursue and hard to change people's ways completely. Using the book example again, remember that Amazon.com took a very long time to become profitable, and even now online book sales represent only a small part of the market. Third, the business case in changing the process needs to make sense, no matter how wonderful the prospects sound. Think of the many tries at internet based services featuring home delivery of fresh groceries, and the many failures, including most prominently WebVan. Fourth, the concept needs to be designed in some way so it's hard for others to immediately follow you. As I watch the social networking phenomenon, for example, while there may have been some spectacular successes, and indeed some, like Flickr, have begun to set standards for their industries, I believe many of these social networking ventures and online wiki sites as well are going to have a hard time standing out. Some businesses are just too easy to clone. And finally, never forget the unfortunate reverse logic that the bigger your process change innovation, the harder it may be to ensure you've enabled the next generation of innovation so you don't get scooped. Regardless, however, if you can envision a significant change in the way customers in your line of business could change the way they do what they do, and it meets many of the criteria and considerations I've described above, I'd say go for it. The opportunity and the amazing business ecosystem growth for those companies that surround yours could be tremendous. That's our show for this week, and thanks for listening. We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit us at www.stranova.com. Write us at ideas at stranova.com or visit our blog at blog.stranova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 2.5 License by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.